Hi, welcome to Conversations with Scientists. I'm Vivian Marks. All the echinoderms are marine marine organisms. So echinoderms have done an enormous amount of novelties. And so to understand, including, you know, rec- completely reshape their body, uh, the body pattern from bilaterian to pentaradial, which is absolutely dramatic. That's Paula Oliveri, a researcher at University College London, talking about echinoderms, which include marine organisms such as sea stars and brittle stars. What's dramatic about them, they don't just have two legs, they have five limbs. They are pentaradial. And when a predator tears off one of the brittle star's limbs and these organisms escape, they can regenerate the lost limb, skeleton and all. How this evolved and how this regeneration works are some of the questions she studies. You will hear more from Paola Oliveri and about her in this podcast. Just briefly, let me tell you about this podcast and we'll get right back to brittle stars and sea stars, evolution and novelty. In my reporting, I get to talk to researchers around the world and this podcast is a way to share more of what I hear. This podcast takes you into the science, and it's about the people doing the science. You can find some of my work, for example, in nature journals, where working scientists publish papers about the latest aspects of their research. And a number of these journals have science journalism with pieces by science journalists like me. Yes, this podcast is about animals and experimenting on animals, which I know some people are opposed to. And yes, animal experiments are uncomfortable to consider. But please give this podcast a listen. It might offer some aspects that you might not have heard about yet about the value of doing ethically responsible research with animals. Paula Oliveri is a developmental biologist, and she studies organisms to learn how a fertilized egg becomes an embryo and then a pentaradial organism. She looks into how organisms evolve and change, where and how novelty arises, and she teaches biology. As is true for so many scientists these days, COVID-19 has affected her ability to do research But it has also made her proud of science and the progress in genetics that has allowed scientists to wrap their heads around SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. The possibility, the diagnostic, the possibility to sequence this virus so fast. I was had a setback a little bit and I thought, you know, if the same thing was 10 or 20 years ago, it will take us much longer to identify what was going on, uh, to figure it out, to modify, to engineer, to strike. We know so much about how the immune system works. And we also not have a lot of things that we don't know. But, you know, how we have done, fortunately, many different vaccines. We we eradicated some disease completely. So we know quite well the dynamic in the population and the molecular aspects and the cellular aspects. I mean, it's fantastic. Paula Oliveri teaches biology and evolution and an appreciation for different organisms. Not all of her students want to go into research and not everyone is interested in echinoderms, but she's trying to convey a sense of an understanding of how evolution has shaped the natural world. The students in biology, from my experience here at at UCL in, in UK, I would say that they are divided into major streams. A stream that goes into science because they want to, they are 
bounded or interested in advance of science and knowledge. And I don't think they will be, this makes them difficult going to work with Drosophila or sea urchin, or they are more looking for what are appealing questions to them and they continue. And actually they are the one that might end up even doing, you know, very weird new animals or things like that. Then, of course, there are the, the uh, which I'm not saying that they're little, but there are uh, another part of the biology students that they are much more driven on the, I would say, the biomedical aspects. So biology to solve human problems. And then certainly, yes, I would say that potentially they will not, uh, they might have an experience into, um, into echinoderms, but they're not definitely, they're not going to be their favorite. In speaking with students and reading their papers and assignments, she realizes it's important to think carefully about the words used to describe science. You know, I have, a, I, I, I teach, this is my teaching term. Ah. And uh, and um, so uh, I get a lot of write up from students and all these things, and I deal a lot with evolution. And one oh, of the things yes. that uh, I say to my students, so there is one word that I'm starting to become a bit allergic when they write, which is not wrong, but is which is the word believe. Because it is interpreted wrongly by the others. It's not that I believe, I have some evidences, and this is my model. It's not just a, a, a blind belief that this is what it happens. And that is the biggest difference. And that I say, you know, maybe we should start to refrain a little bit to use this word in scientific context and to say the things in a little bit more correct way, you know. Because the, the, in the reality, the word has a different meaning. I mean, it's used in, in, in normal life in many different contexts. So some people might misunderstand what is the, how it is used in that context. One aspect that fascinates Paula Oliveri about echinoderms is that they can regenerate. And that is an aspect that caught one of her students rather by surprise. I had a student, an undergraduate student, that is that just to tell you about the experience. She was very much interested in regeneration per se, and she had a, she was in the stream of human genetics, so nothing more than having that way of thinking. And when she was assigned to me for a research project, she was a bit disappointed. But interestingly enough, and that is about perception. After not even a month, not only she graduated, she did the bachelor with me, she did the master with me, and she did the PhD with me. And she actually had the, the is the person that I need to thanks to basically open up and put the hands about this, started to work with the regeneration in echinoderms and try to compare with development and try to disentangle how much of the developmental process is used or reused during regeneration, how much is new is regeneration specific and try to figure it out, how the two things. So she was a human geneticist. She just, in the reality, many people actually don't even know that, that you can do so much important advancement in these 
systems. Her student changed her views just by working with Paula Oliveri and realizing how many basic biology questions this organism would help answer. We work together. Beautiful. It's fantastic. It's nothing better than, than, of course, I have my knowledge, my experience on the system. We look together what was the best system that could have worked for where we were and the, the seasonality. If there were other things already published, maybe at descriptive level. And then we went to Marine Station every year for summertime to collect these animals, to do the experiment, to try to do controls and non-controls to and and, and that's how it, it, it came out as beautifully to extract DNA to study to sequence the genome to do transcriptome to really get an advance so of course all these things are done in a mouse so if somebody only wants to do you know divine uh, uh, methods and and uh, that is important for I don't know nowadays for the coronavirus and things like that certainly is not as fast but that doesn't mean that is uh, and that cannot work and it doesn't achieve important advancement to study basic biology questions paula oliveri feels she has found the ideal organisms to study they are sea urchin sea star and brittle star for a long time, there's been a kind of pantheon of so-called model organisms, the one many scientists study and are supposed to study. This pantheon includes the fruit fly, corn, the nematode, the mouse, among others. Historically, in developmental biology, sea urchin has been an important model organism. Alejandro Sanchez Alvarado who is executive director and chief scientific officer of the Stowers Institute for Medical Research, and he's a Howard Hughes Medical Institute researcher, he thinks that the time has come to dispose of the terms model and non-model systems. He prefers a term that he finds more accurate, that's research organism. Paolo Oliveri did postdoctoral research in the lab of Eric Davidson at Caltech. The lab's research organism was sea urchin. Before, I was only working with sea urchin. And when I was in Eric's lab, I was always only working with sea urchin. But now, and you, you sent me a quote from uh, Alvarado Sanchez, Sanchez Alvarado, about model organism. And I can only agree with him. Now that we have the genomes, now we have the things doesn't exist anymore a model organism. So we can expand our uh, approaches to virus classes. So what I introduced since I am a UCL is a, a species, which is a, actually a brittle star, so it's, it's not a, a sea star, which is very interesting for me for the dual aspect. One is the evolution of one cell type, which is how they these animals make the skeleton in the larvae. But the other interest is they regenerate. And so the beautiful thing is that they have both their development and the regeneration available. So one of the things about modal organism that nobody tells you until you put the hands is something could be a modal organism for regeneration, but they cannot do any embryogenesis on that or vice versa. It could be a wonderful embryo developing things, but you cannot have it to work. And that is really, I going when I teach to my student, the reason why I say, they don't exist model organism. They exist experimental organism that we need to use 
properly depending on the questions that we want to ask. The pantheon of model organisms, the one that so many have studied in the past, they don't appeal to her for her research. They were the organisms to study, a small group of important big shot organisms. Yeah, they were because uh, one is a not very old fashioned way of thinking, which is, is uh, I think I'm very much convinced is, is hard to die. And the reason why the word is organism is because when the tools were not available, the genome were not known, the genome editing was not available and all these things. These were the only animals that in the lab could have been raised in a fast way, could have done genetics and all these things. But to be honest, I mean, now with all the advancement that we are doing, we are next generation, post-post next generation sequencing era. We can sequence everything very cheap. I mean, the, in, in UK, the Wellcome Trust launched the Darwin Tree of Life. We wanted to sequence 60,000 species around UK. So you can imagine what is the knowledge that we have. Now, do we really need all this old-fashioned genetics? No, we have genome editing and all these things. So we can start to do experiment rather quickly in many different species, in many different things. That might be much more appropriate, actually, to answer some questions in science. These days, Paola Oliveri splits her time and attention between sea urchin and brittle star. I split time with the two because I'm also interested in the comparative aspect, which is another thing that sometimes working only on a model system, you lose the... So you think that everything that happens in that model organism is the truth. But it could be a specialty of that model organism. For example, much research has been devoted to gradients that develop in embryos, and they shape how the body plan is laid out. There is one called becoid, a gradient in fruit fly embryos. I just want to make you a, a very simple example. Have you ever heard about becoid and the gradient? From fruit flies, yes. So that has been such a model of gradients. I mean, an enormous amount of, I mean, I'm not saying that it was not important, it's important, but an enormous amount of scientists work on this problem and problem of these gradients and all these things. But in the reality is a specialty of Drosophila. As soon as you look at other insects, they don't even they don't even pattern the anteroposterior body <laughs> using becoid. So this is one of the things that by working only on your model organism, you're actually missing. You're missing the perspective of what really is in common and is essential for all living organisms, what is actually a specialty of your system. What also fascinates her is how change has evolved. We all have a common ancestor, and from that ancestor, all of our planet's animal diversity has evolved. So during evolution, so think about that we all come from the same organism. And that's is in in, in there's the Cambrian explosion. There have been a, a, an explosion of diversity, but we all come from the same organism. So in order, in evolutionary terms, to go from, let's say, a, an ancestral of chimp and human and to create human and chimp, you need to change certain things. You need to rewire the network. You need both in development, in physiology, in gene expression, and all these things. So this constantly happens. So to to disentangle, of course, it's very hard to work with human and chimp. 
for the timing, for various things. While it, it is, might be very easy to do, for example, with echinoderms, where we have many different animals that have, we can have the embryos, we can have, they develop really fast, like in three, four days. They're very easy to explore. So now that we have the new modern genetics, and so we can explore the brittle star, we can explore the sea star, we can, and we can start to compare and to understand how morphology can change because we change certain part of the DNA, certain part of the regulatory network. And what are the important parts that they are? Because not all the chains will be successful. Some of the chains will be terribly deleterious. So what happened? There's a special role for understanding evolution, what aspects organisms have in common. For example, Hox genes specify which part of an embryo will give rise to an animal's head and which its tail end. Beyond these issues are the issues of novelty, the things that make some animals very different from others. Here's Paula Oliveri. In the past, the, because we knew very little, we knew very little uh, genetically, we knew very little about genes in general. Uh, people were trying when they were doing uh, evolutionary study to identify what was in common. Hawks genes and all these things. Now, in a way, it is extremely established. But on top of that, evolution is not only what is in common. Of course, it is what is in common because we come from the same organism. But it's also about novelty. So how can we generate novelty? How can we be different novelty in many different ways. So echinoderms have done an enormous amount of novelties. And so to understand, including, you know, completely reshape their body, uh, the body pattern from bilaterian to pentaradial, which is absolutely dramatic. Now, now that we have a lot of things in terms of uh, we, we establish what are the genes that they're always being present in, what are the toolkit and all these things. So how can we generate this novelty? So now that we have so many things in common genetically, how they can do that? To do this work, scientists use a variety of tools, such as gene editing. That includes CRISPR, base editing, and other approaches. CRISPR works. CRISPR works also with um, some um, other modification. There have been, I think it's just single base editing. Um, uh, of course, we have other tools in terms of knockout and knockdown. Of course, the transgenesis has been done. I mean, with Eric, it, it is, I would say, it's probably, I don't want to say older than me, but... <laughs> <laughs> almost not I know it's not older than me but it's certainly 30 years and more that we do transgenesis and, and things so to study what and, and actually in terms of the genome I mean you, you put that the the experiment of the pronuclear fusion but also the chromosome theory has been has been developed by Bovary of the heredity chromosome theory by looking and working with searching. Cycling has been doing working with searching. That's when I say basic, big basic uh, understanding. The searching landed itself beautifully for doing all these discoveries. But the, the genome in, in particular, it is a very good 
point. On top of that, for example, you were mentioning C. elegans and Drosophila. From the genome point of view, C. elegans and Drosophila are actually going back. They're very odd. They have less genes. They have a very compact genomes. They are very, they're not even reflecting what the, this urchin has a genome that is much more typical of a animal genome with large genes, big intergenic regions, and all these things. Of course, again, in all the situation, there are advantages and disadvantages. But the question is, do we want to see how like a big genome evolves? I wouldn't work with Drosophila or C. elegans. Fortunately, the, the genomic technology has been much more democratic than the model system. So they're being applied so easily to everything. And uh, and I'm talking about next generation sequencing, single cell sequencing, all these advancements and these things. So it becomes much, much easier to understand what is the, the beautiful. Paula Oliveri looks at genomes, but not, for example, to find what change might be associated with disease, which is the way, for example, cancer researchers study genomes. For her, a genome is a kind of readable time machine to explore how evolution took place. I feel myself very much a developmental biologist. I have, my training is in developmental and cell biology. Uh, one thing that always fascinated and is a little bit part of what I keep doing is uh, uh, the evolutionary aspects. So how we are, have this beautiful diversity of life on Earth and how did really emerge and what are the mechanisms. And But I'm always thinking very much in, in molecular mechanism, how the things happen. So I'm not, so in a way, I'm not very much... Um, interested about the nuances of population genetics or variation and things like that, but much more on, on how really, by looking at the genomes, we can see what really happened in time and how you know major transition can happen. Can we, uh, there was beautiful discussion we always had with Eric, uh, can we have, you know, uh, co-option on large complex characters in one context versus the others. Are these things can happen in, in a short amount of time, in a long amount of time? Can we see this in the genome? So can we use all the genetic, the beautiful advancement that we are doing in science? You know, with, there are all these genome projects that they are coming where we are sequencing genomes after genomes. How can we use them? Can we use them to understand better how nature rewired the old development in order to make something new. Which I always tell, I mean, this is very basic and fundamental questions. Paula Oliveri always enjoyed basic research, and especially so during her 11 years at Caltech, where she worked with developmental biologist Eric Davidson, who passed away in 2015. It has been a fantastic, absolutely a fantastic experience. I really enjoyed to work with Eric. As, uh, he was I mean, personally, he was a kind of a potential controversial figure, uh, but certainly absolutely brilliant. And to be working with him straight, it was really amazing. I learned a lot of things, also in the style of how to mentor people. So how to, you know, 
discuss science. I mean, of course, science was always the the important things, but what are the you know how to go into science and how to what a little bit what I was saying to walk in 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 a path that nobody ever walked before and not just you know be afraid. I mean, just you know op- open the wing and fly and just get creative. And that was really a fantastic uh, experience and mentorship for me. Learning how to walk where others have not walked takes courage in any area and especially in science. It, it is caring, of course, but at the same time, you know, uh, actually thanks to him, the, the enthusiasm was uh, uh, reborn in me. It's very interesting. So for if we want to say my my history, so I come from Italy, I did my PhD in Italy. At the end of the PhD, I was at one point a bit puzzled. I was like any people, any person, we all get into some, you know, deeper crisis. And I didn't know if I really wanted to take research seriously and continue or or do something else with my life. Um, and I just say, well, let me let me try the postdoc with Eric. I had the opportunity, I was accepted. And I said, let me try. If it doesn't work in a year, I just give it to myself. I'll just start, go to do something else. And he completely refired the enthusiasm and the love for science and for research. To Paola Oliveri, traditional organisms used in research show a bit of a bias toward land-based organisms. If you think about all the model organisms are land organisms, because in a way we live in land and we think somehow, I think there is also kind of like we feel more related to them. We understand that we are... No matter what, we have seen many insects. So we think, we we believe that we, we need to relate and things in a better way. Uh, we understand better. I would say in the in common imaginary, therefore, in what you are choosing to study. But the reality is a lot of ecosystem is marine ecosystem on this world and has an extremely important and there are a lot of species in there and it has an extremely important uh, value uh, probably things will change a little bit because we hopefully will understand that uh, human health means also ecosystem health world health Therefore, people will start to have the tendency to have a little bit more an holistic approach to uh, solving what is uh, human problems or things like that, and not just means is a disease and we need to cure it, but a more like ecological approach, conservation approach, and all this thing. That was Conversations with Scientists. Today's episode was with Dr. Paula Oliveri from University College London. And I just wanted to say, because there's confusion about these things sometimes, University College London did not pay to be in this podcast. This is independent journalism produced by me in my living room. I'm Vivian Marks. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 